from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Marketing Matters on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio Series XM 132. I'm Barbara Kahn, the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing, and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor Americus Reed, the Whitney M. Young Jr. Professor of Marketing and the Brand Identity Theorist. Hello, Americus. Hey, Barbara. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. That's all Excellent. you got? That's no, no. no. Uh, hey, I got lots more. It, you know what? It's, su- it's super hot outside. Uh, it is absolutely a scorcher. And I am excited because I am fully vaccinated. Now, Here's something very interesting. I'm starting to understand, I've become aware of, Barbara, that there is an entire in cottage industry of fake vaccination cards that are oh, now no. entering into the market, which is like kind of an amazing thing. It's like, you know, and it, you know, as soon as something happens, there's always a chess move that's this weird kind of interesting dynamic. But I thought that was kind of interesting and probably a little bit perhaps related to a conversation we're going to have today, right? Yeah, well, we're going to have a conversation. We have as our guest today, Katie Milkman, who is a, a professor of operations, information, and decisions at Wharton. She holds a secondary appointment at Penn's Perelman School of Medicine, and she's been looking at a lot of behavioral change kinds of theories, and particularly in trying to get people vaccinated. And I don't think she's going to advocate a fake vaccination <laughs> card. <laughs> Hello, Katie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And you are right. I'm totally not going to advocate for a fake, <laughs> fake vaccination. <laughs> Before we start, we're going to take a few minutes, if you don't mind, doing what we usually do in this first part of our show, which is our hits and misses. Um, and we usually come up and talk a little bit about some of the news of the week um, and decide whether we think it's a hit or a miss. And we're just going to spend a few minutes on that. And then we'd really love to talk about the things you've been doing. I know with the city of, of Philadelphia on vaccination and in general, your new book on behavioral change and things like that. So let's just start with the hit and the miss. Um, Americus, do you have a hit or a miss today? I sure do. So let me just jump in with mine. So I remember uh, one, one time I was in the uh, grocery store uh, picking up cat food for my cat at the time. And I'm sitting in the cat aisle. Uh, you know, looking at the choices and this woman taps me on the shoulder and I turned around and I said, yes. And she said, you know what? He doesn't care. And, and, and I was like, wow, you know, I'm like going through all these choices. And it was like, I was reminded that, wait a second, this is, you're kind of right. It's just an animal. It's not that big of a deal, but I tell you that story, Barbara, because I'm reimmersing myself into the pet lovers world. Uh, and the hit or miss that I'm going to talk about today is a company called Jinx, J-I-N-X. I don't know if you've ever heard of this DTC, direct-to-consumer pet wellness company. But if you take a look at their brand, here's a little bit about their brand. Jinx's mission is about fueling, now wait for it, modern doghood. So that's a, <laughs> a term. that's a term that they've trademarked. They say that they are the only pet wellness brand that's marketing to its end customer, the dog, hence the new term D to D, which is direct to dog marketing. That's also trademarked. And so here's something that they say. It's really interesting. Uh, Jinx CEO Terry Rockovich says Jinx is inspired by a modern perspective on advanced nutrition that will help our dogs sustain their healthy, advanced lifestyles. But the interesting thing that's the hit or miss for Katie and you, Barbara, is that they came out with billboards for dogs. So they have, they have, they're putting billboards in the parks 
at the eye level of the dogs with their messaging all around the park. And it's getting some traction because people are talking about it. It got picked up in ad week and this whole, so a couple of things to impact or to talk about in this context is hit or miss the notion of, is this silly? Is this real? Is this a good idea? Is this a word of mouth generator? Is this going to like change the perspective? Is this well differentiated in the, in this probably very crowded uh, dog wellness, dog food space? What are your thoughts? Well, I have to weigh in now as a marketing expert. I definitely think it's a hit. And the reason I think so is because as we all know, during the pandemic, everybody got a pet. Dogs, cats went up. You couldn't get one if you wanted. There's a long waiting list. So it's obviously a huge growing market. And then what I read recently is now as we're coming out of the pandemic to some degree, people are not abandoning their pets. They're doubling down and staying loyal to their pets. And they've definitely become a part of the family. So although I don't think the cats have any decision-making process here (laughs) or the dogs, I think generating the conversation and the word of mouth among pet holders is the way to go to create to create brand identity. So I do think it's a hit. What do you think, Katie? I'm going with it's a hit too, because it's so ridiculous that it's funny. (laughs) And so we can have conversations like this. And and I think humor is a great tool for uh, generating word of mouth. It's an emotion that makes us Mm. want to talk to other people. So Mm. I love it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I've always been fascinated, Barbara and Katie, that just the notion of like understanding the pet lover, I, well, I study identity, but like the pet lover identity, this is serious stuff too. It's like people, it's very, serious. It's very serious. So you don't mess around with it, this, you know, very important uh, member of the family. So to sort of break out, to lean in on that persona and to take it this far in the context of trying to differentiate your product, I think is pretty interesting. What are your thoughts, Barbara? No, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think it's a big hit. And I think leaning in on the pet owner, especially following the pandemic, Mm, is the way to go. Let me uh, switch gears a little bit and just quickly talk about one that I'm kind of making it current um, by a a little technicality. But um, Sweetgreen um, is what's the current news here is they're moving away from an outsourcing advertising to coming in with an in-house agency to create brands. So that's the news. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I thought was interesting is, you know, Sweetgreen is going to go for an IPO, a healthy brand. It's done a a re-move on their brand, really their brand identity coming out really healthy and food um, oriented, good for you kinds of things. But the, the angle that I think is somewhat interesting is they chose as their brand ambassador, Naomi Osaka. Mm. Um, and I'm, yeah. I'm curious to know what you guys think about all of that. You know, she, she right after they chose her as mm-hmm. the ambassador, she mm-hmm. made that somewhat controversial move to drop out of the tennis uh, match because she wanted to preserve her mental health. And what Sweetgreen did when she did that was come out very strong um, with an endorsement for her. Mm. Um, And they said that they were, they believed that wellness should be a holistic approach, that they Mm. were proud of her Ah. awareness around the importance of mental health. Interesting. Um, And I'm just curious about whether you guys, what, how you all think about the Naomi Osaka move to withdraw from the tennis match um, because she was worried about her mental health. Americus, do you have a take on that? Oh, I absolutely have a take on that. Thanks for bringing that up, Barbara. It's a really interesting context, especially in the notion of you know influencer marketing and endorsements and things like that. I will say this. I will say also, relating things back to the pandemic, one of the things that has been highlighted here is this notion of wellness, right? And the idea that mental health is, is something that shouldn't be a stigmatization. It should be something that we can all talk about. 
Uh, and even though we're in this two-dimensional, you know, virtual space, it's a serious issue, whether we're teaching students or we're interacting with other people. So I think it was a, it's a kind of really important moment to sort of try to start moving toward normalizing conversations about mental health. And I think that's really what she's trying to do here. So, so that it's not seen as this very odd thing, you know, when you're struggling to, to articulate those, those issues and to seek help and to, and to recognize when it's time to prioritize self-care, which is exactly what she did, you know, by saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to give this interview. I'm, I'm working through issues. And so please respect my, you know, my identity as an athlete, but as a full uh, composite human being in terms of like trying to get myself better. So I think that's actually genius for Sweet Green to like lean in on that and say, oh, you know, we, we wanted you, you're a superstar athlete and you're going to be the next Serena Williams probably. But to also say that we've, we've got a healthy kind of thing that's associated with our identity. And now we can also lean a little bit on this kind of additional issue, which is clearly also related to wellness as well. So it's kind of a big win-win in some senses. I think also in terms of what Katie was saying with respect to emotions and humanity and generating these kinds of conversations. What are your thoughts, Katie? Well, first, I love that you went to tennis. And I have to say, tennis is, I don't know if you know this, Barbara, but um, I was a competitive tennis player. I played D1 no, tennis in college. Really? Cool. It's my. It's in my bones. Um, it's a big part of my book, How to Change. I talk a lot about how tennis is uh, influenced oh, the way I think about behavior change. Anyway, I'm a big fan of Naomi Osaka. I think what she did was brave and fantastic, dropping out of the French Open. I mean, it's such, tennis is a really lonely sport. It's tough mentally, more so, I think, than almost any other. You're out there by yourself. You're not allowed to get any coaching during a match. You're battling against someone else for hours on end. And then you come under the microscope afterwards when the media pepper you with questions about, you know, why didn't you do this? Why did you make this mistake? It's a tough situation. It's been a tough year for her, obviously, for lots of other reasons. She's been um, right active in expressing her views on the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think is fantastic as well, you know, wearing masks with uh, statements about that. So she right. is a really, you know, she's taken a lot on. Mm-hmm. It's obviously natural that that's heavy. And I'm glad she's taking care of herself. And I think Sweet Greens did a great job. Um, I actually didn't know about this until you mentioned it, but it seems like they did a great job uh, just doubling down and saying we really support that. And I'm, I'm glad she's not playing in Wimbledon and taking the time she needs to recover. Yeah, so it's a real play for will for wellness. I guess we have two big hits. So now, Katie, we go to you. You can either come up with your own hit or miss, or we could start talking about you're making your own news in Philadelphia with your vaccination program. Your choice. Do you want to do a hit and miss, or you want to go double down and talk about what you've done with the city of Philadelphia? Well, maybe we can talk about whether it's a hit or miss. <laughs> we'll play. We'll play, Katie. <laughs> so that, that, that's... <laughs> I love that. Game, set, match. Katie Milton. <laughs> right there. <laughs> All right. Do you so want, me to, you yes. want me to dive in? And share yeah, a little dive bit in. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm, I'm anxious to talk about it, actually. I'm, I'm eager to know what you think uh, after hearing the way you diagnose these things. Um, so it's called the Philly Vax Sweeps. We considered other branding. I'm curious what you think about that naming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we yeah. wanted to stay away from, we, for, you know, we were thinking about things like take your shot, but people pointed out that the, vi- uh, the vividness of thinking mm. about a shot or a jab actually mm. want that out of the name because it can scare some people off and we want to make this fun and exciting and um, not have a fear factor associated with it. So the way that our vaccine sweepstakes works is a little different than any of the previous ones or, or any current ones actually that I'm aware of. It has 
two unique features relative to the sweeps you've heard about in Ohio or California, Maryland, et cetera. First is that it is a regret lottery, which means Mm. that you actually, uh, in most places, you're only eligible to win. If you get a vaccine, you're only eligible to get a call after you've registered. The way Mm -hmm. ours works is everyone in Philadelphia is automatically entered if they are in a residential database that we have of about a million people. Mm -hmm. And although you can enter and make sure that we've got the right information for you, you only get one entry per resident. And then we'll call you up or send you a, an email, whatever contact method we have for you, if your name is drawn. And if you did not get a vaccine, you will have to tell us because we're going to validate that. And then you won't get your money. So people oh. could get a call. Hey, we've got $50,000 for you. Wow. And have to decline it. So that's, that's called a regret lottery. It's meant <laughs> to make people imagine the regret oh, they'll feel. Interesting. interesting. I yeah. think that is such a fantastic idea. Do you have any preliminary um, evidence of whether it's working or not? It's too early. Honestly, the city doesn't get data that's really good, high quality data until about 10 days after the fact from all the different, uh, you know, pharmacies and providers. So we're getting that data, but what, what it actually means we only have a, a few days of data already. Understood. We get it yep. on Tuesday of the week. So we just have a uh-huh. couple days and the couple days we have, you know, I'm encouraged. I'm excited. We'll see. We, ha- we knew that we had 55,000 people manually register for it in the first week and a half to make sure that we had their information right, which is pretty good. So that, that was exciting. And um, I'm really, you know, we'll see. We, there's data on Ohio showing that that lottery was was effective initially Mm -hmm. uh, generated extra vaccinations right off the bat there's Mm -hmm. some you know we'll see how it sort of turns out in the long run is it just moving people to get them faster is it changing the total number Mm. of people that's a Mm -hmm. different question but it certainly sped things up so that was exciting can I ask you a question on this when before you I mean you're putting a lot on the line here and you're using all of um Philadelphia to test this. I'm curious if you did experiments on this particular idea or you based the initiative on what you knew from the from the literature. We based this initiative on a lot of experimentation that's been done showing that regret lotteries are are highly effective before. Mm. So we were really building on that, but it's not been done in the context of vaccines. And I will say, you know, a year ago, I wrote an op-ed, actually more than a year ago, in June, early June of 2020 in the USA Today with a couple of my co-authors, Angela Duckworth, Mitesh Patel, saying, we need to be figuring out right now what is going to change people's behavior around taking vaccines. We need to be testing because, you know, everybody's focusing their attention on developing the vaccines. Great. We need them. People are focusing on the supply chain, but no one is thinking about how do we make sure everyone wants to take them when the time comes. And I would say I felt like that message mostly landed on deaf ears. We were able to develop a partnership with Walmart. We were able to develop partnerships with a couple of local health systems and ran studies with almost a million participants testing different messaging around vaccination. But we were never able to test incentives because there, there's legal challenges to that. And we should have been testing. Like the, I wish that the government had been testing and had made this a priority. So that drives me nuts. But what we do have, you know, is decades of research in general on how to change health behavior. And we're leaning on that because there's good evidence on the power of regret lotteries in other contexts. I'm Barbara Kahn. I'm here with my co-host, Americus Reed, and this is Marketing Matters. And today we're joined by our colleague, Katie Milkman, who is a professor of operations, information and decisions at the Wharton School. And she also holds a secondary appointment at Penn's Perelman School of Medicine. And she's involved in a new initiative, a new lottery, a regret lottery in Philadelphia for trying to incent people to get 
um, vaccinations. And I'm, I'm interested, you know, that you said you started thinking about this last March. And I remember there were some other people at Penn thinking about that, too, that, you know, you were ahead of yourself when you know predicting what would happen in a year. And I remember where I was in March. I could not think about incenting people to get vaccinations because you couldn't get one if you wanted it. There was, it was so hard to get it at the time that my focus is on when is it my turn? How many months do I have to wait? Why do I want to think about incenting new people to get it? So it was really hard because of that um, that well, I, I, we were talking about it in March of 2020, right before before we'd even shut down the country. We were talking yeah, about Yeah, I this. mean, also that's like yeah, yeah even yeah. further. It yeah, was really a long time ago. But yeah, I, I do. Wow, that's I, so forward thinking. So what? How did you know that it was good? I mean, like I said, I was just much more focused on will there be a vaccine? Will there be a vaccine? And can I get it? So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not as forward thinking as you are. How did you, why did you anticipate that this would be the problem that it is turning out to be? I mean, Biden's, Biden's deadline was like 70% in a, in a month and he's not going to reach his, his. No, nope. so there re- it is really a significant problem that people aren't getting vaccinated and we're throwing away vaccines that people aren't taking. How, how did you know so long ago that it was going to be such a big problem? Because this is not our first rodeo. So I've been studying <laughs> vaccination decisions for a decade. Um, this is not exclusively what I say. There are people who literally exclusively study the challenge of encouraging people to take up vaccines. I've looked at flu shot vaccinations and how we could encourage that, including actually in 2000. Gosh, let's see if I can get my timeline right. I think it was 2009, the H1N1 pandemic, which seems like, you know, nothing compared to what we just went through, but we were really frightened of that. And there was a vaccine available. It was bundled with the flu shot. It was hard to convince people to take it. Um, and so even though the, the flu vaccine, for instance, is recommended for every American, only about half get it. Mm-hmm. And we just knew it was going to be a, mm-hmm. an uphill battle because vaccines, even though kids, we do much better with kids, mm-hmm. right? About 90% of kids get the vaccinations that are recommended for them. It's tough without schools right. behind it. It's always, it's tough because it's a yeah. decision and, and it's a health decision and not everyone does the right things. And so we wanted to be out in front of it and realize this was going to be a challenge and wanted to, wanted to use this moment to make sure we didn't get right. behind. So we tested dozens of messages, um, but we yep. weren't able to test incentives until now because until there now. wasn't an appetite. And this mm-hmm. summer, really everything changed once we weren't just prognosticating and everyone could see the challenge. Suddenly everyone was ready to do it. So we've yeah. been able to do this sweepstakes. Yeah. 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 I was just, I was just going to say that. You're, so if only half are taking the flu vaccination, which is something familiar that we're all kind of used to, you can only imagine here's this new thing. Plus it's highly politicized and so on exactly. and so forth. It's going to be even more of a chance, but I want to go back really quickly, Barbara, to something and just get both of your perspectives on this because drilling down on this regret thing, what does the data show, Katie, on are there long-term negative outcomes about triggering regret? So I was thinking the example might be like compared to someone who's not feeling regret about not yeah. having done something. If, you, if, you, if you're told like, you know, you're going to miss out on something and then you do it and then you don't get it. Do you feel worse? Because it's like not because in some sense of you, you've increased the probability maybe that you think that I do have a good chance at this. Otherwise, why are they telling me? And now you're worse off because you, you thought you might have a higher chance, but now you don't get it. You know what I mean? So is, is there a yeah. regret? Is there a counter balance, not balance, counter, you know, sort of problem backlash problem with using regret? What does the data show on that? 
Yeah, well, the data shows it's highly motivating. So it's, it, you know, you get sort of more bang for your buck out of a regret lottery than a standard type of lottery. However, you're absolutely right, America. There's some really interesting, pretty new research by Alex Emis, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, suggesting that if you just do this over and over again, and you look longitudinally at people's mm. feelings and reactions, that there, there may be some negative repercussions of the repeated regret lottery because of that negative emotion that it generates uh, over time. But mm-hmm. we're just doing this, we hope, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Not <laughs> so, so the, the idea, Katie, is like, listen, you can be pissed off, but at least you're vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'll take pissed off if you're vaccinated. <laughs> Interesting. So um, a couple, uh, there's so much to talk about. I'm worried we're going to run out of time, but I wanted to go a little bit over what you did find with your Walmart study. You said you mentioned you did that study. And I know you, even though that wasn't about the COVID vaccine, you did find some results on that. And then I do absolutely want to get to your new book, which is called How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. And all of this is in that kind of category. So what happened with the Walmart study? Yeah, so the Walmart study uh, we did last fall, and the idea was let's test messages that, um, and we crowdsourced to about 150 scientists who are interested in behavior behavior change, who work with um, Angela Duckworth and I at the at the Behavior Change for Good Initiative. They're all around the world. They all study related topics, so in different disciplines. We said, okay, we have this opportunity to message people about vaccination. We're going to test these messages around flu vaccination in the fall of 2020. But the idea is to test messages we could then port over as soon as there's a COVID vaccine and try to use effectively there as well. So we crowdsourced, we tested dozens of messages. We actually tested them in two sites, both at Walmart, trying to get people to, you know, hop in the car, drive to their pharmacy, ask their Walmart pharmacist, could you give me the flu shot. We also tested them at two local healthcare providers, Penn Medicine and Geisinger Health in the region with people who had a healthy visit. They were going in to see their doctor. We had about 50,000 people. And we texted them three days before that healthy visit to encourage them to accept a flu shot when it was offered. So pretty different decisions. But what's fascinating, even though we tested a really wide range of messaging strategies, and there were really different things tested at both sites, because it might take something quite different to convince you to accept a vaccine from your doctor than to ask for one at the pharmacy and drive in when you weren't already going to make a visit. We basically found the same thing in both settings, which is sort of, I, I found astounding. And that was that the best performing messages of everything we tested was really simple, very clinical, the kind of message you're used to getting from a pharmacist or a doctor's office. It basically said, you know, you have an appointment or we're, we're thinking about you and um, we've set aside a vaccine for you. So uh, we've reserved it for you, come and get it, or it's waiting for you, come and get it. Much more effective than things that I thought would be great. Like we were just talking about humor. We tried something that said, you know, hey, here's a joke about the flu. Have you heard the one about the flu? Don't spread it around. That was a dud. <laughs> uh, I thought it was great, right? I love it. Yeah. Attention, it's light touch, uh, right? Make something that might seem scary fun, but that was really not. It was this sort of when we did an attribute analysis across these dozens of messages, the things that leapt out were this reserve for you or waiting for you Mm -hmm. type, you know, it feels like it's been set aside. It's yours. Maybe the endowment effect kicks in. Um, It feels recommended like a default. You wouldn't reserve it for me if you weren't recommending it. It's going to be hassle free. It's already set aside. So that wins. And then like really 
it didn't do well if it was informal or the kind of thing you wouldn't expect to get from your gotcha. doctor. So interactivity, humor, just gotcha. that was tanking. That so that's what we found. That, yeah, that's, that's super that's, interesting. The, yeah, the that's psychological, really interesting. Sorry, the psychological ownership piece, Barbara, right? That's, that's so, I mean, that's straight out of the BDT work, right? It's like, once you think it's yours, you're not giving it up. Like, you know, it's like, wait a minute, that's my vaccine. Of course I'm going to take it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. no, we're really excited about it. And I should just like, I want to flag one other thing that I'm really proud of, which is that uh, one of our collaborators in the study, my former Wharton student, Heng Chen Dai, who's now a professor at UCLA, along with Sylvia Sicardo of Carnegie Mellon, they did a rapid fire study in January using our best performing message to encourage people to get vaccinated against COVID and found that it was the best performer when they tested it in that setting too, that it, it did move the needle to pun intended so that was exciting to see the translation terrible pun (laughs) (laughs) i I actually love it katie you 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 have a career as a stand-up comedian if you want to do that let me just tell you right away unfortunately change people's vaccination decisions (laughs) okay let's just move a little bit quickly so you wrote this book how to change the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. And you documented a bunch of, of your own research in this book on behavioral change. Can you tell us some of the, you know, we want people to go out and buy the book, so that's fine. But can you tell us some of your favorite effects that you documented? Or which yeah, you- sure. Well, so, so let me tell you first, like really high level, just sort of big picture. The big message of the book is that I, and, and I think it will resonate with both of you and be like, yeah, of course I teach that all the time, but I, I think it's underappreciated when it comes to individuals who want to change their own behavior, organizations trying to change behavior for, for good of um, employees around things like savings, eating right, you know, productivity habits, you name it. Uh, a mistake is often like we just, look for a single attractive, shiny technique, a hack, right? And we say, that sounds great. Oh, big audacious goals. That's all we need. And instead of thinking and diagnosing, what is the barrier that's standing in the way of change? And how can I actually match the solution I'm proposing to topple that particular barrier? So the book is organized around a series of different barriers that are really common when it comes to change from sort of the problem of getting started to forgetfulness, to um, impulsivity and procrastination, uh, laziness, which, you know, another nicer way to say that is sort of inertia and habits, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. as well as self-confidence, believing you can. So each chapter is a different barrier and then talks about the research that I love most that has worked on that. And it's all about internal barriers, really. You know, there's one chapter about social and how important it, because you you can do something about your social network. It's, it's not about structural barriers, which are of course huge in this country. It's about, you know, what's inside you for the most part. So that's the, that's the book in a nutshell, but then a couple favorite takeaways that I talk about. One is uh, related to some of my work on something called temptation bundling, but it's a bigger idea. I think that Ayelet Fishbach from University of Chicago, thank you, um, (laughs) and Caitlin Woolley at Cornell have done. And they have this great insight, which it's like one of those things that smacks me in the face every time I say, like, how did I not come up with that? But the insight is uh, most of the time when we're trying to pursue a goal, we try to do it in the way that we think will be most effective, right? You're trying to start a workout habit. You're like, let me go to the the machine that will burn the most calories per minute. That's how I'm going to do this. And it turns out, even though most of us have that intuition, um, a subset of us do it a different way. We look for the most fun way to pursue change. So think about the gym, maybe Zumba class with a friend. And 
when you're encouraged to pursue change in the most fun way, most people actually persist longer because if we don't enjoy it in the moment, because of the fact that we are impulsive creatures, we overweight in instant gratification, we don't persist on the things that aren't giving us that instant gratification. So finding ways to make whatever change we're trying to pursue enjoyable is critical. And then temptation bundling, which is linking something that feels like a chore with something you love doing, like, you know, only letting yourself binge watch Bridgerton while exercising at the gym, for example, or eat your favorite snack when you're studying, you know, whatever it is. Um, Linking Mm. that temptation is something I've studied that's a way to create fun. And I have to say, sample of one, it works on me. I I listen (laughs) to podcasts only when I'm walking or running and I bundle those two. Now, Americus is an animal, so I'm not sure. (laughs) But for a normal person who doesn't like exercising so much, I have found that temptation bundling just to be really a, a great way to get me to go out and go running or walking mm-hmm. so appreciate you katie for your research and for all the things you're doing to make society a better place and hopefully us healthier and building on wellness um it's been great having you here so where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your research and find out about your new book how to change oh thank you for asking the best place is probably my website which is just Katie with a Y, like Katy Perry, milkman.com. And they can find, I have a podcast called Choiceology that I do with Charles Schwab about decision-making and how to improve decisions. I have this book. Um, my research is there. There's a, a newsletter I do called Milkman Delivers. See, I am funny. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, it's all on the website. That's great. Oh, that's great. Thanks again, Katie. Thank well, you we- for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, it was really fun. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about ways in which McDonald's is vocally supporting Pride Month and the marketing behind all of that. This is Marketing Matters Business Radio, Sirius XM 132.